Lyric Opera of Chicago General Director Anthony Freud, soprano Maria Kanyova, and mezzo-soprano Elizabeth Deschong are backstage at Lyric. It has a kind of combination of nostalgia, romanticism, horror. I hear Wagner, but I also hear Mahler in it, with the sense of loss of an era past that, that I find so compelling um, about Mahler's music. I adore it. I, I cry every time I see it. I can barely not cry through the overture, let alone the end of Act Two. I adore this piece. Yeah, I think the overwhelming sense is perseverance, strength, focus. Those are all character traits that Hansel and Gretel learn to use throughout the opera, and I do think that speaks to adults, even though it is a story that, you know, perhaps we think of as a children's story. I think that children will get it right away because of their familiarity with the tale itself. But for adults, Hansel and Gretel are very focused on hunger as a key issue. But I think adults can almost substitute any issue that overwhelms them, overwhelms their focus, be it financial issues or relationship issues, even dietary choices. Um, things that lead you down a path and can overwhelm you, and you get to a point where you have to make a decision whether to let, whether to be consumed by your urge or make a good choice and come out at the end successful. Welcome to this edition of Backstage at Lyric. This time we present an audio transcript of the Discovery Series session for Hansel and Gretel by Engelbert Homperdink. For those not familiar with the Discovery Series, it consists of panel discussions with the singers, directors, and conductors, as well as other talent from the Lyric Opera season. There is usually one session per opera, and they generally take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. For more information on the Discovery Series, including ticket information, visit lyricopera.org. And now we turn things over to this Discovery Series session, featuring Elizabeth Deschong, Maria Kanyova, and Antony Freud. Your host and moderator is Lyric Opera of Chicago dramaturg, Roger Pines. Roger. Hi, everyone. I'm Roger Pines. I'm dramaturg of Lyric Opera, and I want to welcome all of you to the Discovery Series session for Hansel and Gretel. Um, all three of our guests are making their Discovery Series debuts, and it, this is going to be a really marvelous discussion. Um, I'm really thrilled that our general director is joining us this evening. Um, Anthony Freud has been general director of Lyric Opera since October 1st, 2011. He held that same position from 2006 to mid-2011 at Houston Grand Opera and from 1994 to 2005 at Welsh National Opera. And it was at Welsh National that he commissioned the Hansel and Gretel production that we're presenting this season. It's also been at the Met and in San Francisco. Um, Anthony is the current chairman of Opera America and the former chairman of Opera Europa. His past positions have included executive producer for the Phillips Classic Recording Company. At Welsh National Opera, he began as company secretary in 1984, and in 88, he became director of opera planning. He began his professional life at London Sadler's Wells Theatre, where his duties included those of theatre manager and company manager. He holds a law degree from King's College of the University of London. 
Both of our artists this evening are alumni of the Ryan Opera Center, and they're both enjoying exceedingly impressive careers. Maria Kanyova, our Gretel, has also been heard in that role at Los Angeles Opera. She sung 10 roles at Lyric, most recently Rita in the world premiere of A Wedding and the title role of Madama Butterfly. She will reprise her butterfly this season in New Orleans. And she's also singing quite soon a world premiere in, at San Francisco Opera, Mark Adamo's The Gospel of Mary Magdalene. She has a spectacularly diverse repertoire. It's taken her all over America, including to seven major companies where she has sung the role of Pat Nixon in John Adams's Nixon in China. Most recently, she sang it at San Francisco Opera, and she also sings that role on CD in the Opera Colorado production. She's had great successes at the New York City Opera and Glimmerglass Opera in St. Louis, Dallas, and Houston, and in her European debut as Marie Antoinette in The Ghosts of Versailles at the Wexford Festival. Hansel is Elizabeth DeShong's 11th role at Lyric. Most recently, she was Hermia in A Midsummer Night's Dream and Rosina in The Student Matinees of Barbara Seville. She uh, is singing this season Rosina in Detroit and concerts with the Cleveland Orchestra and Los Angeles Philharmonic. She debuted in Europe as Hansel uh, with Glyndebourne on tour, and she later sang that role at Glyndebourne itself. She's also played key roles in Zalame in San Francisco, in Lucrezia Borgia in San Francisco and London, and in Alcina and Ariadna of Noxos at Wolf Trap Opera. She scored major successes both at Glyndebourne and at Canadian Opera Company as, Rossi, as Rossini's Cenerentola. Last season, she was in a Met HD transmission singing another character by the name of Hermia, this one in The Enchanted Island. She's also been heard with the Pittsburgh Symphony and with the Chamber Orchestra of Europe. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series, Anthony Freud, Maria Kanyova, and Elizabeth Deshaun. Okay. Now, I assume that this is an opera that I do not have to tell you the story of. We all know it already, yes? You don't need my 60-second opera-in-a-nutshell version of Hansel and Gretel, so I think we can just start right in. I know your feelings for this opera are unlike any that you have for any other piece in the repertoire, Antony. So let me just ask you, what is the special role that Hansel and Gretel has played in your, in your early opera-going life? It was actually the first opera I ever saw um, when I was probably four or five. My, my parents took me to see it at Saddler's Wells Theatre in London. And um, it's still one of my very, very favorite operas. I, I absolutely adore it. I, I see it whenever I get the opportunity to see it. And of course, um, having worked on this production of it at, at, at Welsh National Opera in the late 90s, I got to know it better than ever before and got to love it more than ever before. Um, it has a kind of combination of nostalgia, romanticism, horror. Um, I, I, I hear Wagner, but I also hear Mahler in it mm. with the, the, the sense of loss of an era past that, that I find so compelling um, about Mahler's music. I adore it. I, I cry every time I see it. Um, I, I can barely not cry through the overture, let alone the end of, of, of Act Two. Um, I, I adore this piece. Um, Maria and Elizabeth, is this a piece that goes back quite a while in your lives too, or have you only come to it recently? I became most familiar with it when I was leaving the Ryan Opera Center, having Hensel and Gretel as my first professional job. 
The Glyndebourne one? Yes. Wow. The Glyndebourne tour was my first step out of the opera center and into reality. <laughs> and um, it was just a spectacular way to start a career. I, I love this piece. I hope it's something I continue to do. Um, I, it just touched a special place in my heart. And Glyndebourne is another place, like Lyric, that holds a very special place in my heart. Um, I actually um, was introduced to the piece when I did uh, a young artist program in Colorado before I came to Lyric. And um, I don't know if you know the name Nathaniel Merrill, but um, he was in charge of that program. And he actually staged a very famous production at the Met. So his familiarity with the work was um, very um, in-depth and great. And uh, it was kind of wonderful to be introduced to it by him and then um, you know, to sing it um, at, at a very young, tender age. Um, uh, and then after that, um, I did the Sandman and the Dew Fairy here at um, Lyric. And, um, you know, going from another side of the, the opera, again, just being so enchanted by it, for, by looking at every character um, and looking at the two, the Sandman and the Dew Fairy, um, in a different way that I hadn't really seen or done before. I was, um, I'm, I'm also just completely enchanted by the piece. In terms of the dramatic side of things, I think a few decades ago, this piece was still sort of regarded as fluff, but we know now that that is not the case at all. So I wanted to ask all of you, what qualities in Hansel and Gretel do you think communicate especially vividly to a contemporary audience? Well, (laughs) I'll say... um, I think that children will get it right away because of their familiarity with the tale itself. Um, but for adults, Hensel and Gretel are very focused on hunger as a key issue. Um, but I think adults can almost substitute any issue that, that overwhelms them, overwhelms their focus, be it financial issues or relationship issues, even dietary choices. Um, things that lead you down a path and can overwhelm you and you get to a point where you have to make a decision whether to let whether to be consumed by your urge um, or make a good choice and come out at the end successful and triumph much like Hensel and Gretel do by kind of pushing aside the treats and focusing on the witch and getting her out of the way and in the end everybody's happy yeah I think the overwhelming sense is perseverance um, strength, um, focus, those are all characters, character traits that Hansel and Gretel learn to um, use throughout the opera. And I do think that speaks to adults, even though it is a story that you know perhaps we think of as a children's story. I mean, it's a very dark uh, story. And, and even it, explaining it you know, to children, they might have a, a certain understanding of it um, that isn't quite as dark as it actually is. So I think it, it kind of it appeals to everyone, uh, children and adults. And uh, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's probably why it isn't always considered fluff. It, it's dark, it's savage, it's violent, it's vicious. Um, if you read the original Brothers Grimm story, um, it, it's truly out of yeah. a most horrible horror movie. Um, we, we have Humperdinck's exquisite romantic music. Um, and to me, what is so thrilling about our performances is that it juxtaposes um, the, the horror of the Brothers Grimm story, adds an injection of, of really 
very funny humour uh, and blends with this extraordinary score in a way that creates a cocktail that is really irresistible. Um, I, I think it, it's a production that really um, entertains uh, and enlightens. Um, and kids, as Elizabeth say, says, kids get it instantly. Um, it's full of contemporary visual references that I think speak very strongly to, to, to kids. But as an interpretation of, of um, a very special piece, it, it takes us to levels of understanding that defy anyone thinking that this is a piece for children. Um, hunger, cannibalism, poverty are, are all um, prevalent uh, in, in this production. Um, and if you start with the premise that in Act 1 the children fight about food, in Act 2 they dream about food, uh, and in Act 3 they very nearly become food, um, I, I think you get a wonderful starting point for the experience that we offer uh, through these performances. When I read the grim fairy tale recently, one thing that struck me is that it's not their mother, it's their stepmother, mm. and she is vile. <laughs> so I wanted, I mean, just really appalling. So I wanted to ask you, Marie and Elizabeth, if you've read the grim fairy tale, well, whether it helps you or doesn't help you. This is the confusing part, because I, I think, uh, you know, originally this story, it's folklore. It was told, not written down. And so it, it has many different takes on it. Um, uh, originally, uh, the story was the stepmother. Um, this was before the Grimm's actually um, pieced uh, stories together, um, that the mother was uh, a stepmother, and that she, it was her idea to put those kids out into the woods and they had to do it twice. It didn't work the first time. They did it with pebbles and the kids came right back. And then uh, they were locked in their rooms. They couldn't get out. So uh, as they were being taken the next morning, Hansel grabbed a piece of bread and he laid the trail and birds ate it and that's how they ended up in the woods. But the the mother um, actually dies um, in the end and and in some... um, there are some people that believe there's a correlation between the mother and the witch, perhaps mm-hmm. being the same person. But in the Grimm's tale, um, initially they had changed the mother to be the biological mother. So it was actually the parents. And then later went back to the idea of the stepmother because it just is crueler and you know, <laughs> darker. But, um, but there are some you know, um, pointed differences between the Grimm's Tale and uh, the Humperdinck opera, for instance, the bread. Well, in the opera, it's, it's uh, you know, berries. It isn't bread. And uh, it is uh, their mother. Um, and, um, and she doesn't die, <laughs> you know, at the yeah, end. Yeah, the mother gets redeemed at the end because mm-hmm. the mother comes, the mother right. and the father come to the, the witch's house. And uh, so there's this lovely reunion. But then when, uh, what I enjoyed in the story was that Hansel and Gretel... Uh, carry with them going back home all of these jewels, jewels that they yes. found in the witch's house. <laughs> right. And they come back to their, they, they have this arduous journey to get home and they get home and they discover that their stepmother has died. They mm-hmm. have all of these jewels and so they and their father live on the jewels happily ever after. <laughs> right. Elizabeth, it is kind of an which, abrupt. Which they stole. Yeah, oh, right. which they stole. Right. Right. Um, Elizabeth, how do you feel about the Grimm story? Well, I kind of like the ending of, in the operatic tale, that it ends with just triumphing good over evil as opposed to just 
finding your riches and living, living happily ever after with all your cares taken care of. But um, I, I like it sometimes when, when Hansel and Gretel is staged with the mother and the witch being played by the same person where you can tie you in that. sort of the grim tale that, yeah, it to it. Yeah, it almost seems that it is... That yeah, that when they the destroy the witch, they destroy in such an evil way. The evil mom. Yeah. <laughs> have any of you seen it done with? Yes, I have. Oh, what is it mm-hmm. like? It's very interesting. I, English National Opera uh, years ago did a, a very successful production directed by David Poutney and Felicity Palmer, I think, oh, wow. was both mm-hmm. witch and mother. Um, and, you know, it's one of these rich masterpieces, and in deciding how to interpret it, you can focus on a whole range of aspects. Mm-hmm. And, and that was one of the points of that production, that it was um, the, the same person, at least in the minds of the children. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't focus on that as, as an element of our production. On, on, on the other hand, the end is not quite as um, happy uh, and um, simple uh, as it might be because um, the witch is baked into a cake uh, and the children, um, including Hansel and Gretel, um, decide to think about eating the cake. Um, Hansel does eat the cake... Gretel decides at the final second not to eat the cake, but the spirit of cannibalism continues. And who's to say what the children we see on stage, including Hansel and Gretel, will grow up to become if they have decided to actually eat the witch? Mm -hmm. Um, I think this is a piece where the vocal requirements are extremely underestimated. I find just listening to it, it's exceedingly challenging to sing. So let me ask you, Marie and Elizabeth, what these roles actually require of you, just in terms of the vocalism. Well, obviously, <clears throat> the, the dichotomy is that we're playing children mm-hmm. and uh, that in, or, in order to um, sing over an orchestra like that, you have to use um, all you have. Uh, vocally, so you know the trick is how do you sound like a child and yet carry over an orchestra like that? I think the key in it really, and in any um, big orchestration like that, is to make sure that your voice stays supremely focused the whole time from top to bottom. Um, you know, which is um, I guess the way we should always sing, but in this music, it, it's a demand. You have to do it. Um, and I, I think that's you know probably one of the challenges, um, and yet it's kind of one of the glories of of singing it is is concentrating on the voice in that way. Are you consciously striving for a, a, a sort of brighter sound no. in, in uh, keeping with being keeping with sort of a kid's? I think it's sort of letting the emotions of the particular scene you're in inform the color that you use mm-hmm. and the amount of adult texture and color that you use and if you use the right colors with the right emotional intent then you don't I don't think you're read as to adult and you right. stay in the moment that the children are in and then it reads I think mm. um, while the vocal uh, requirements have often been underestimated the orchestral requirements are not certainly by great conductors I cannot tell you how many great conductors in the performance history of this piece have either recorded it or performed it in the opera house. So, Anthony, to what do we owe the, just this, this allure that this piece has for both conductors and orchestral players? Well, H- Humperdinck was um, a great orchestrator. 
um, and a writer of great tunes. Um, some of the tunes um, in this piece are, are folk tunes, which he adapted and turned into his own, um, but he was very much influenced by his um, master, Wagner, um, whom he assisted um, most notably in the early 1880s on the preparation of, of the first performance of, of Parsifal um, at the Bayreuth Festival in 1882. Um, there's even a suggestion that, that Humperdinck wrote some of Parsifal, the, the um, trans, uh, transposition music in Act Three, taking us from outside uh, in the forest to the, the, the Hall of the Grail. Um, legend has it, and this is not by any means confirmed, but it's, it's a legend that is talked about quite a lot, that the um, music that Wagner wrote was not actually long enough for the scene change um, to be achieved. Uh, and some poor technical person at the Bayreuth Festival in 1882 had to go to Wagner and say, Maestro, um, we need a bit more music. Could you write a bit more, please? And um, I, I don't envy that person. Um, Wagner uh, apparently said, uh, oh, yes, okay, Humperdinck, you write it. <laughs> and so uh, apparently there is a bit of the transformation music of Act Three of Parsifal that Humperdinck wrote. Um, we will never know, I suspect. Um, but as I said earlier, I, I find it very reminiscent also of, of or, or reminiscent is the, is the wrong word, very um, keenly anticipating the world of, of Mahler um, in terms of its use of folk music, in terms of its sense of nostalgia. Uh, and the orchestration is, is simply gorgeous um, in a way that challenges an orchestra similar, similarly to the way Wagner challenges an orchestra. Uh, and I think conductors and, and orchestras are, are fascinated by those challenges and by the need to make it both richly sonorous and light as air. And, and that's a very heady combination um, that, that faces an orchestra and faces a conductor in interpreting this piece. If you go back to the recorded legacy of this piece you hear, oh my goodness, you hear Herbert von Karajan conducting Elisabeth Schwarzkopf and Elisabeth Grumer. You know, that's the kind of performer who's been attracted to this piece over the decades. But I wanted to ask all three of you, do you have particular, particular favorite orchestral sections where you just look forward to a particular instrumental obligato, maybe just a particular instrumental color um, whenever you hear the piece? I absolutely adore the pantomime that is always my highlight for listening why um i don't know i i i think it's just how it it builds in beauty and anticipation and um and and ultimately you know enlightens everyone kind of um in their imagination of what what is happening however it is staged you know you could close your eyes and you could see something in your own mind happening it's just so incredibly beautiful and so emotional it, it takes me away I have to be very careful that um, even though I am facing up stage I could cry but that I don't <laughs> cry because I would I wouldn't be able to finish the opera but it has that kind of effect on me it's, it's very just comforting so, music isn't it it just mm. is, it it is it's in a, in every way it just is so so incredibly beautiful what about Anthony I, and Elizabeth? I wish I could jump in with a different favorite moment, but I have, to, I have to agree. The way that the pantomime builds and builds and builds, and then 
and then opens up into just kind of wonder, mm-hmm. just this wondrous territory that's so open and and alive. I it it just draws you in in a way that very few moments I think can. It's amazing Anthony, to be quiet that, in that moment. It, it's wonderful. Anthony, is that your favorite portion as well? I, I think. For me, purely musically, the overture is is unbelievably compelling because, uh, and it's entirely personal. It's because it was my first opera. It's because the LPs of um, the Sadler's Wells performance in English of Hansel and Gretel were the first LPs I was ever given as a child. There is something about the opening of the overture that stirs feelings in me that um, are hard to describe. I, I love the pantomime too, but. I will forever associate the pantomime with this production because yes. it, it, mm-hmm. it seems to me that the sequence from the end, entry of the Sandman to the end of Act Two in this production is is truly one of the greatest pieces of operatic direction yeah. I have ever encountered. It's the work of pure genius. And, and when you read the stage directions for the dream pantomime about 14 guardian angels hovering over the heads of the, the sleeping children, protecting them as they sleep, it, it's a wonderful idea. But, but into, to, to try and transfer that into um, theatrical terms that would work well for a contemporary audience is hard to imagine. And, and what Richard Jones and John McFarlane do um, in terms of understanding what two hungry children would dream about and the terms in which they would dream it is absolutely breathtaking. Um, you've probably seen the photos of the moment. Just in case any of you haven't yet seen the production, I, I'm not going to describe it in detail because it needs no introduction. It, it's um, a sequence that I have yet not to be moved to tears by. Uh, and it's partly the music and it is a gorgeous piece of music but it's also the production that that I, I find mm. unbelievably heart stopping. I have to agree with that. I was I didn't want to say exactly what was happening, but that's that is really why I'm so taken by it. Is just the idea of what we're, what's happening and what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, with the music. After seeing this version, I will never be able to accept fourteen angels coming down, no, it's a, making a little circle around Hansel and Gretel. It right. doesn't mean anything. It's so true to that moment. It's so the, the the idea of the children fantasizing about food, fantasizing about the way the food is presented to them, the whole concept of them dreaming about wearing adult clothes <laughs> at an adult banquet. It's it's brilliantly perceptive it's it's so precisely right it's so precisely what that moment is about and and I I guess if we try and think through what we want to achieve in producing an opera it's to get under the skin of the piece it's to get to its core to get to its essence Um, telling the story is important but it's only part of the challenge Uh, actually what we have to do is dive under the skin of the piece and really try and reveal it to our audiences uh, for what it is essentially about not only what it's superficially about. And, and frankly, for me, this whole production uh, it is a triumph from that point of view. It's one of the great operatic productions. Well, your perspective on it is unique, obviously. You commissioned it. Um, how did that come about? Did WNO just decide that it was time for a new Hansel and Gretel? Or? Um, I, I guess I decided it was time <laughs> for a new Hansel and Gretel. Um, it, it, 
as I say, it was one of my favorite operas. Um, Welsh National Opera, I think, had never done it before. Wow. Um, and it was very much in my mental wish list of things that I wanted to do. Um, I admired Richard Jones's work very much. Uh, I'd never worked with him at that point, and so I met with him um, over lunch one day. I said, Richard, I would love you to come to Welsh National Opera. Um, what sort of piece would you be interested in doing? Hansel and Gretel, he said. Done, I said. Wow. wow. It was as simple as that. And, and then the other component part, which was also interesting, the, the conductor of the original performances was, was the very, very young Vladimir Yurovsky, who is now music director at Glyndebourne, um, music director of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. I heard him when he was 23, I think, in Wexford, conducting Rimsky-Korsakov's May Night. And in, in Wexford, I think they still have a tradition of playing the Irish national anthem yes, before each opera. And um, uh, May Night was the third of the three operas that I saw at that visit. And, and by the end of the national anthem, I knew that I needed to engage Vladimir Yurovsky because <laughs> it's a wonderful tune, the Irish national anthem. And he made that tune come to life and communicate emotionally in a way that neither of the other two conductors had done. Uh, and it was a perfect match, um, a very unlikely match. They couldn't be more different, Vladimir and Richard. Um, <laughs> and yet they have worked together a number of times since on, on um, a number of productions, some of which I, I was responsible for. Was it Richard who brought our designer, John McFarlane, into the picture? Yes, yes. Um, and that, again, was, was a perfect match. And they worked together a number of times since. We should remind everybody that John McFarlane is the same designer who gave us our wonderful new Electra this season. Talk about a contrast of two pieces. So um, were you involved in the sort of the, the creation of the piece in the sense that you were following all the creative moves that yes, were being ver- made? Yes, very much so. Um, n- not incessantly. When I, when I engage a director and a designer, of course, I, I let them do what I've hired them to do. I don't try and do it myself. But inevitably, I, I was involved as the, the design developed, and um, I, I won't ever forget the, the, the design presentation um, because it seemed such an extraordinary, compelling, complete view of a piece I thought I knew well. Um, but it was clear to me that this was going to be a, an extraordinary, groundbreaking interpretation. Um, you know, sometimes you, you, you just have a good feeling about a project. You have a good feeling about the personalities that you bring together. Uh, and as their work begins, you have a sense that this is going to be one of the special ones. What effect do you think the updating to, po- well, I view it as post-war Britain. I assume you view it that way too. Yeah, I mean, 50s rather than 40s, right. I think. Right. Um, uh, Richard is very stirred by that era. Um, there are a number of other productions of his. He did an absolutely brilliant Billy Budd in Frankfurt a few years ago. Um, and if you'd asked me to name a piece that I would think could never be uprooted from late 18th century uh, British Royal Navy uh, battleship, um, I would say Billy Budd probably can't work outside its original setting. Richard set it in the 1950s in... Um, a boys' public school, and it was astoundingly brilliant. So there is something about the 50s. Richard and I must be a similar age. So um, 
I, I was born in 1957. Um, I, I suspect this is 50s, 60s. There was still depression, um, economic depression, um, from which the country was slowly emerging, but it was very much before the, 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 the more um, enjoyable elements of the 60s had kicked in. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess only Act One is naturalistic. Uh, only Act One has a specific time and place. Uh, and in many ways, in this production, Acts 2 and 3 take place in the same space as imagined by the children um, as Act 1. Um, and, and if you see the, 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 the performances, um, you, you will notice that, that in Act 1 there is a sink to your left, there is a table in the middle of the stage, and there's a stove, an oven at the back. And, and those three elements are constant throughout. Uh, and so the forest in Act 2 is... is the space in the children's imagination of what a forest might be like. And, and the Act 3, which is kitchen, um, was inspired by um, the first Jurassic Park movie uh, and the fact that... Do, do you remember at the end of that movie, the raptors were chasing the children around a gleaming stainless steel kitchen? Well, th that was one of the, the design references. It's no longer gleaming, it's tarnished uh, in, 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 um, by the time it gets into the hands of the witch. But it... The production is full of those sort of, of, of references. The, the Dew Fairy, for example. Um, I, I don't think fairy liquid exists in the US, does it? But it's an... Does it? Dish. Fairy liquid? It's an iconic British uh, washing up liquid. And, and uh, on the bottle, um, there is an image of a, a green um, fairy, uh, like Tinkerbell in a way, with, with little wings. Uh, and the... Um, the, the jingle, um, which again was, was iconic in, in British TV advertising, was um, let hands that do dishes be as soft as your face with mild green fairy liquid. Oh my goodness. And the um, inspiration for the Dew Fairy was, was uh, actually the, the little image of the fairy on the fairy liquid bottle. Of course, she becomes a kind of ideal mother symbol for Hansel and Gretel because she is the, the, the perfect caring parent. <laughs> um, I want to talk a bit about characterization in this piece beginning, Maria, with Gretel. What do you think her most prominent character traits are? Um, well, I, I think there are uh, many, but I mean, one, one in particular is that she channels her mother just uh, slightly throughout the show, and then um, that grows, that, that uh, character trait grows. Um, although she's fun-loving and she, um, you know, ha has fun at the suggestion of Hansel, um, there's kind of a logic in her mind, too, where she can say, no, wait a minute, no, we're supposed to work. Here, let's get back to work. You know, this is the mother speaking in her, the mother that they should have. Um, um, although she experiences a great deal of fear in the middle of the opera and uh, is almost unable to cope with it, in the end, um, she solves the puzzle by how she um, takes care of the witch and it, with you know Hansel's help, um, what they ultimately do with her, but she kind of comes up with this idea herself. So, her her um, through line, her characterization is um, her growth is is great from start to finish, and um, I, I think that's you know kind of an extraordinary thing about a little girl that she grows up so quickly um, within this short time period. 
you were said to us a couple of days ago when we were recording for the broadcast that um, that you're channeling your own kids. Yeah. How are you doing that? Yeah. All of the things that they do as children, the way they dance around, they're constantly dancing around me. They're, the, they're um, mercurial thoughts, you know, one minute they're happy, one minute they're not happy, how they they change, um, how mature they can be on, on one side and and how um, blissfully um, childlike they are on the other. And I really, I really try to think of that and channel their energy when I'm performing. Elizabeth, you told us that you're channeling your little brother. How are you doing that? I do. I kind of think back to when we were kids and how we used to play together. And my, I have two younger brothers, and I just think of kind of how rough and tumble and sort of almost unaware of, of himself well, both of them, both of my brothers could be um, with their bodies. They don't have the same self-awareness that I think young girls do. I think from a very young age, girls are kind of aware of how they look, how they sit, how they move. And the little boys just kind of, whatever, at least my brothers, I speak just for them, not all boys, I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, whatever they're focused on, that kind of informs them in that moment, and that's everything to them. Um, So I just kind of, I just kind of feel them and just let down my guard. I can't you can't be self-conscious. You just kind of have to let go. Um, and I think whenever Hensel gets into an emotional state, it comes out physically for him. He's not going to think it through in words. He's not going to think of his parents and, and rationalize his choices. He's going to just, it's just going to come out as he kind of tries to make sense of it. He's going to pick at the table. He's going to futz with his clothes. It just in little ways, you'll see little things he does to make himself comfortable, little motions that he does repeatedly throughout one extraordinary aspect of, of the production is the physicalization of Hansel and Gretel. I, was, by, I wanted by, to talk about that in detail, right, yes. By, by Maria and Elizabeth. And, and it, it was something that developed right at the start of this production. Um, Linda DeBell um, was the original movement director, choreographer. Sadly, she died very young, about three or four years ago. And, and she really developed the physical vocabulary that um, anybody who plays these two parts in this production um, use. And, and it's a kind of heightened reality. It's, it's not a pastiche. The last thing in the world you want for this opera is, is for two adult singers to be playing two children in a generalized kind of sweetie pie way. Um, that there's nothing sweet about the way in which these two children are, are physicalized. Um, there's something scary about Gretel's um, wildness of movement. That there's something obsessive um, about Hansel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Elizabeth said, uh, when he gets to heights of emotion, he, he becomes um, very focused physically and mm-hmm. very determined physically. I, I have to say, if you weren't there on Friday, um, Elizabeth and, and um, Maria do the most miraculous physicalization of their characters. It's really extraordinary to see and unsettling, intentionally. <laughs> so the big question then is how, what was the process for the two of you like in making this movement happen? Because it's very challenging. I, I think when it was first introduced, you know, how, well, of course I was familiar with the piece from ha- having done the Sandman, the Dew Fairy, so... And you had I, done Gretel too. It, well, yes, but uh, that I... Um, got to watch um, uh, uh, Hansel and Gretel kind of develop this characterization. Um, but, you know, when it was introduced to us, I mean, the, the thing that kind of stuck in my mind, how to 
you know, justify this kind of um, neurotic, you know, um, crazy behavior that the children have. I mean, we have to remember that the, the children have to have been in a storyline. They have to have been abused. And how do children cope with that? They, they have to mm-hmm. find coping mechanisms and ways to keep themselves um, connected and, you know, to stay afloat in, in such a horrible, horrible environment. So um, I, I think that's, for me, how I kept in line with that um, characterization. Yeah, keeping aware it of, of keeping structure in the chaos. Yeah. And through that hunger, keeping that hunger, the intensity of that feeling in your body so that at no time do you lose that sensation that everything has that tense nature to it. And for Hensel, I know everything kind of is angular, like it's sharp movements. Everything's uptight kind of all the time. Were you, uh, well, first of all, you weren't working with a choreographer because Eric Einhorn, our director, has remembered the entire production, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So are you literally choreographed in every move you make or is there a certain leeway that you have? No, I think, I mean... I, I wasn't familiar with the production. I wasn't in the production in any way before this. Um, I think more it was what came naturally through informing yourself for the scene, but then we were reminded of keeping that intensity, keeping that focus within what feels natural to us in our portrayals of the characters. How were the two of you asked to play Hansel and Gretel in your previous experiences, Maria, you in Los Angeles, and Elizabeth, you at Glyndebourne? <clears throat> Well, um, you know, in Los Angeles, it it was an updated version of the fairy tale that we all know and imagine in our heads. It's very colorful, and um, and we were we were very physical, um, but it was a um, not as dark uh, of an interpretation, and it was it, we were told and and you know, um, really staged to be playful and, and almost happy as if to ignore the fact that we had, we were abused, <laughs> you know, um, it was, it was kind of a different way to handle it. I think in this way, it, the abuse actually affects us. And, um, and, and although we're still trying to have fun, it, it affects us physically and how we deal with one another in our, in our small mm-hmm. space. Yeah. And, in our I, hunger. and this one, I think maybe similar to you, we're a little bit older maybe than, I, certainly I was in the last production I did. We were much, a few years younger and crucial few years because here we're about 11, so we're at least, we're kind of in bridging the gap between stage. feeling like little young adults but mm-hmm. falling back into being kids at all times. Yeah. Um, so in, in our production, I just felt much younger and again, we distracted ourselves with play and, and we seemed to be able to get distracted. It was just more rough and tumble and straightforward. Mm-hmm. And also, one. you were, you looked a little different. In yeah, more You had like a rugby shirt and a buzz yeah. cut, I think. Yeah, Hard yeah. to imagine, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. We haven't, it was scrappy. We haven't talked <laughs> up to now too much about the parents and how they are portrayed in this production. How, how are they being played? Well, I mean, I think it, it goes along just with that same idea that, um, you know, there's definitely abuse in the household and uh, the mother just simply does not hold back, really, in, in her feelings and disdain for the children and her anger. Um, and so, you know, that correlation that one can have, you know, is the witch the mother? Is the mother the witch? Although not portrayed in this production, it kind of crosses your mind. You know, she's, she's very witch-like. I mean, she's really... Um, 
really abusive. And but everybody seems to have their coping strategies. Each of us have our little ticks, or the mother has pills, or the father has alcohol. We well, the all mother's have suicidal, strategies. Is she not? Yeah, we, we all have our strategies for maintaining our own personal balance mm. in this piece. But, yeah. um, she, isn't she in the act of swallowing the pills and then she hears her husband's voice? Mm-hmm. Only one, though. She just puts oh, it's one, only one. She only it's puts not. one pill in her mouth. We, ah. we don't know whether she intends to take the rest of the bottle. Ah, but okay. It, it doesn't carry on long enough for us to find out. And, <laughs> and what about the father? Because he is so often just sort of hail fellow, well-met, jolly. And, and he clearly beats his wife. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh yes. right. That right. much Again, is clear. The line of the abuse. There, is a, yeah. there is a moment when she says, don't, don't hit me again with that broomstick. Mm-hmm. What about the witch? Um, Anthony, did Richard Jones come to you with a particularly different idea, as, you know, far removed from the standard witch? Well, I think the discussion about what is a witch w- was a fascinating one, and, and, and it is a fascinating one, because for, for the idea of a witch to be meaningful and to be conveyed with the right sense of um, intensity was, was something that, that he, he wanted to really embrace. Um, the witch in this production is is essentially everyone's favorite granny who is warm and friendly and enticing and wants to give everybody the best time of their lives. She, she just happens to have one slight character fault, and that is that she roasts and eats children. Um, and Richard wanted to capture this this um, rather scary um, duplicity in the witch, um, but he, above all, wanted her to be real. He didn't want her to be a caricature with a long hook nose and a and a long hook chin. Um, and so the the fusion of of, of granny and murderer. It is at the heart of, of, of what this interpretation is about. One thing that's wonderful is that, you know, this is a role where frequently a number of vocal compromises are made, but when you have a singer like Jill Grove, who is a genuine dramatic mezzo, which is the voice the role was written for, you are hearing a, a vocal performance that, I mean, the, the, the role is truly sung, and which is not always the case, which brings me to an interesting question. Anthony, when the, this pr- production was new, you used a tenor as yeah. the witch. A tenor was used at the Met in this production, and Elizabeth and Maria, you've both performed with a tenor. How does this does this change anything? The tenor tradition, just to explain it, um, really originated in Germany, I think, um, where the piece is the equivalent of our nutcracker. Um, it's the traditional Christmas entertainment and uh, most German children are dragged kicking and screaming to their local performance of Hansel and Gretel and as a result are scarred for life, never wanting to see another opera. Um, And there the tradition of men tenors playing the witch uh, has become kind of normal. And, And when the Met did it for the very first time, which I think was only a few years after it premiered, which would have been 1906 or something like that, that I think they did it the first time, it was, it was their resident character tenor did it. 1895, October 1895. With the, the premiere. It was the premiere right. at the Met of Hansel. The, premiere, the, the world premiere was 1893 in Weimar, mm-hmm. and, and less than two years later it had its um, U.S. premiere at the Met. So 
Elizabeth Maria, what do you remember of doing it with a tenor? I mean, did you, th- did you think the whole time, oh, this should be a mezzo? Or I know, as a mezzo, I, I often prefer it as a tenor, uh, just, in, just in the sense of vocal quality. I think sometimes it adds an extra creepiness factor to have that tenor voice playing a female. But in a production like ours, where the witch is, is essentially real, with a major character flaw, it's almost nice to have the witch be a woman. I, I think the difference for me is that, you know, with, with uh, the tenor, um, it's, it's the voice that's funny. You know, it's the way they're, they're handling their voice, maneuvering mm-hmm. this very difficult sing, which is part is, mm. is very, very difficult. And um, no matter how they handle it, even beautifully, it, it is kind of funny to hear. Um, so they don't really have to do much acting. I mean, it's just kind of funny as you hear it. Now, in this case, um, with Jill's amazing voice um, singing this very difficult music, it's her acting that is making it so incredibly mm-hmm. funny. Um, she's making it funny with a few choices through her voice, but it's really an incredible acting palette that she's put into this part um, to make it, you know, uh, very funny. So for me, it's it's kind of that's really you know the major difference that I hear. We were talking uh, when the, when Jill came uh, to the broadcast booth a couple of days ago. Uh, we talked about the various cackles in the role because they're notated, and she says, you know, I. I have to sort of adjust the cackles because you know, cackling on a high B flat or a high G or wherever they're notated is a very, very tricky thing. So she had to be very precise in where she placed them vocally. Um, now, Maria, when you did this production, you were the Dew Fairy and the Sandman originally. So um, can you, well, first of all, what do you remember of playing them, those two roles? Um, well, if, the first thing that, struck me well you know as we were staging and I really um couldn't conceptualize the puppet yet we were just kind of um using something well, so why don't you explain how the puppet works first. well first when they f- first told me that I was going to carry a puppet and we were staging it I just had something that was acting like the puppet and this I had no the idea the sandman I had no idea really what it was um going to look like and then they put it in my dressing room and sat it down in the closet <laughs> and I opened it up and I literally you know had to yell because I'm like that's it oh my goodness and I had to kind of squeeze its nose and hold its hands I mean it was just so like alive and strange and I kind of had to get to know it and you know um, manage it but um, in actuality it was just such a wonderful thing to know that what was really the focus of the audience was this incredible puppet and uh, that I was just manning it and bringing it alive. It was um, kind of an ex- uh, extraordinary So did you, you walked on in black, right? Yeah, black with, uh, you know, kind of a mask over my face okay. so to, as to not be seen. And, um, yeah, it was, it was really a, a delight. And so then you come back at the beginning of Act Two as the Dew Fairy. What were you wearing there? Well, this was really fun for me because I have very dark brown hair, and it was my first experience being a platinum blonde. <laughs> and I was thrilled, you know, to put this wig on and kind of play around with it. And you know, immediately Marilyn Monroe came to my head, you know, all of these. I don't know. I was just thinking of all of these glamorous um, blonde women. And um, in this lovely little blue waitress outfit, I just had so, such with fun wings. with it. With, with wings. wings. Yeah. No doubt. And um, the idea that what, what was said before um, is that the idea of her, of the Dew Fairy, is that she is the mother that they should have had, that they've always wanted to have. And that was 
really my main focus in, in portraying her and such love kind of spewed out of me as I walked on stage and lifted that that curtain up and saw them laying there and I thought, oh yes, I, I do need to clean up for you and, and you know take care of you and that's really what went through my mind. With the rubber gloves. With the rubber gloves. <laughs> <laughs> but, but those of you with very good eyesight or a good pair of opera glasses will see that, that when you see Kiri Dionarin as, as our Jew fairy, she's wearing um, bright red nail varnish. The trail of blood continues even through the Jew fairy. Oh boy. Now, there's a very important... We've talked a little bit about um, how important food is in this opera, but uh, inquiring minds want to know what food are you eating and beyond that, what other food is on the stage that you're not eating? Because there's a whole menu in this opera. What is going on with the food? I have to say that chocolate cake is amazing. The fruit is. Oh, my goodness. Yes, the first one. This is the very first (laughs) thing that you eat, right? Yes, oh, from the from the large cake that right, comes out right. of the tongue. Yeah. But the first thing we eat actually are the raspberries. Yes. Oh, because oh, oh, they're real raspberries. <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, they wow. are. And so, all their kind of mushy glory yeah. as we get to smear them all over <laughs> each other. And so once you get into the kitchen with the witch, what's the first thing you eat there? Oh, isn't there a smoothie that you drink? We do. We have a strawberry soy milk cocktail that she prepares for us. But most of that goes down our front. We don't really I mean, consume that edible. too much. Everything that's on the yeah. table is we could edible. Potentially. But Maria, you get something spooned into your mouth, by the oh, way. It's something absolutely. white. It's and amazing. I'm really not sure what it is. Is it rice pudding, so maybe? Good. No, no, no. Oh. It's like a, um, a meringue top to this um, ah. you know, cake that, well, gets sheep puts her face in but 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 I do I get that's the the one thing that I get to be fed um there's a lot on the table that um I wish I could eat but there's no time to eat it <laughs> we just get to smear it on our plates yeah, and you know, throw actually, it around I actually eat an orange and a handful of icing though I do get fed kind of that's a icing, big bunch of vanilla yeah. icing when do you get the icing uh, when Jill walks by she kind of opens my mouth and just it swipes hustles. it in. With it's your turkey hands. moment when you're being yes. when you're being a turkey. Yes, it's I'm all bound trust. up. <laughs> yes. Um, now you don't drink the stuff that that goes down the tube that she puts. That the... that is cleverly maneuvered so that I don't have to have the mush. I have a sort of a little bit of soy milk that's plugged into the bottom of a tube, and I kind of suck that out, only to release it a few moments later. I'm afraid. The witch, in the course of her big solo. <laughs> Uh, usually in that solo, she's flying around on a broomstick, but in this production, she has a big bowl into which she's throwing everything but the kitchen sink. I mean, just watching Jill throw in, I mean, can you, can, I don't know if you can see it, Elizabeth, because you're trussed up at the time. Mm, I got a few you, glances. What, what, what does she throw in there? Oh, jelly rolls, profiteroles. I mean, it's just everything. We've got rice pudding pudding. going in there. And the best part about it is that I get to turn those machines on. (laughs) And sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But when they work, watch out. It is flying everywhere. And we end up with, you know, gook just In your hair. Yes. (laughs) And a raw fish, which is probably the only bit of non-real food on the stage. That's it. Mm -hmm. I would say. Um, I, now, in the other Hansel and Gretel's that you did, was was there that much food on stage? Oh, this no. must be unique. No. <laughs> this is very unique. <laughs> I was trying to figure out, because we got a list of all the food from the prop department, and I saw um, a, a jar of Nutella 
And I thought, where would they? You, you don't remember seeing any Nutella on the stage? No, I think Not, that was a personal order. Also 30... Also 30 meringues, I thought was really something. <laughs> 30 meringues. Um, Anthony, you talked before about um, Humperdinck's association with Wagner. Um, people speak so frequently about the similarities between um, Wagner and uh, Humperdinck but what about um, where Humperdinck was departing significantly from Wagner in his approach? Brevity <laughs> is uh, <laughs> one departure from Wagner. Um, I, I think um, the use of folk music is something that doesn't occur in Wagner, I don't think. Um, I, I think it has a sense of nostalgia that, that Wagner doesn't have. It, it has a sense of... of the end of an era that, that I feel very strongly from, from the score that, that I don't think you, you feel in Wagner. Um, a lightness, but Wagner does have many light touches and, and certainly a lot of this score is reminiscent to me of, of the second act of Siegfried or, or, or moments of um, a Meistersinger. Um, but it, it, it has a lightness, a transparency that permeates it that I find really magical. You know, um, I'm always curious about opera and translation and how it sings. Um, so, Anthony, your first experience would have been in English, correct? With the well, piece? yes. This is actually the first time I've experienced this production in German because the Met do it in English. Um, it works very well in English. And, and what's interesting is that for the supertitles in this production, um, they are based on David Poutney's singing translation, which was the translation that was used when this production was, was new. So I, I actually very much enjoy um, the surtitles specifically because they remind me of, of the sounds I was hearing when, when the production was new. Um, it's a it's an, a discussion that we can have endlessly about the the benefits of of an audience hearing um, uh, singing in its own language um, to the compromises of, of hearing opera in translation uh, when the composer created the sounds of the words um, specifically from a different language. Um, there are advantages and disadvantages. Now, your two experiences in Los Angeles and at Glyndebourne, were those both in English or in German? Only German for me. Only? Los Angeles was English. Was English. So how did you feel about it? In yeah. Um, well, that's kind of a double-edged sword because I, I do like to um, hear Hansel and Gretel in But I like it to be kind of more wedded to what the German actually is. So when one takes liberties and they change it out too much and it kind of changes the story, um, that can be difficult. Um, but, you know, I, I enjoyed, um, you know, conveying it that way. Um, but I have to say I love the German. Um, I mean, I think that obviously with every opera that, you know, in its original language it's, it speaks... Um, not only to the language, but how it was set, the colors that the language creates, um, because this is a, a basically you know a, a children's story. Um, the the German has such a 
childlike quality to it. Um, sometimes, and is rhyming most and of is the time. rhyming all the time. I mean, it's just even if you don't know the German, I mean, it's just so beautiful to hear um, these words. So, uh, in, in that respect, I'm, I'm really quite honored to be able to do it in German as well. I'm always curious about how performers feel at the end of a performance with the kind of physical workout that the two of you are going through. Could you like sleep for a week at the end of a Hansel and Gretel or are you totally exhilarated? Both. <laughs> I, I'm ready. I'm ready for a nap after. <laughs> Once the sugar high fades from, right, from the right, scoops of right. icing and such, I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for some rest. <laughs> now, you are on stage, the two of you, with kids at the end. So how has that all gone, your interaction with them? This is with um, Anima Young Singers of Greater Chicago. They are delightful. Yeah. They really are. And um, so professional. And, and they just, you know... Um, Follow the direction and took right to the mm-hmm. the staging and worked so hard and their facial expressions I don't know you know I hope people are close enough to see them but they're just so involved and so committed to their parts and um, you know really uh, you know the the beauty of their vo- voices kind of radiates through their faces and it's really a pleasure to be on stage with them. Yeah, they were they were so inquisitive and so interested in, in every part of it, and they were interested in our characters. It was it was very sweet how they gravitated to us. Like it, I, maybe they almost felt that we were kind of like them Peers, in the yeah. stagings, you know. And certainly our heights made that yes, <laughs> a lot of them were so. you know, a little easier yes. for them. <laughs> I'm also always curious about responses that people have to a particular performance or production. Anthony, when when you first did it at WNO. What's, what sorts of responses th- do you remember? It, it was a huge hit. Um, I, I think some people who were expecting a more traditional fairy tale approach were um, surprised by it. And inevitably, there were a few people who were dismayed by it. But even those who were surprised on the whole were won over by its brilliance, its, its uh, humor, its darkness, its logic. It's a, it's a very clear production. Um, Channel 4 TV in in the UK, I I don't know if it's still the case, but certainly it was then. They always created um, a a counterpoint to traditional television. And um, they actually recorded this production um, as their Christmas Day, two o'clock in the afternoon um, feature. And um, it, it was a kind of typical Channel 4 gesture that just as the nation was sitting down for its Christmas feast, they were presented with this very dark interpretation of an opera about cannibalism, uh, hunger, and the overabundance of food. Um, and, and that, I must say, appealed to me hugely. I, I loved that juxtaposition. Uh, Elizabeth and Maria, have people come up to you already just with particular responses that you remember from, uh, well, whether here or in other productions that you've done, as far as the piece is concerned? Well, here, I mean, I think um, the responses that that I have received and when I did it before as the Sam and the Dew Fairy is that it's so enlightening. I mean, it's, you know, that people know the story and they know it as as this beautiful, colorful fairy tale, but when you really get down to it, the fact that this production really shows what it is about in a, a, f- a fun and light way, sort of, it, it really gets down into the deep and dark. And um, they're almost grateful, you know, almost thankful that they've been enlightened in that way to see this production. 
Yeah, certainly the people I've spoken to have really been been touched by touched by mm-hmm. the production. Even even with its darkness, they they really gravitate to it. They they really enjoy it. But I mean, as a woman playing a young boy, I, I will say the majority of the comments I get are. I never would have guessed that was you, or <laughs> but I don't I don't understand how how that's you up there. I don't I don't get it. But well, that was that's quite. <laughs> they a get tribute. confused by that's the transformation. Wonderful. I well, in the costume department and the wigs, I'm not. I'm not patting well, I want to thank all three of you very much. It's a glorious production, and all of you, if you've seen it already, come back and see it again. It's mm-hmm. just a very special moment for us at Lyric Opera. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this edition of Backstage at Lyric. For more interactive content and to purchase tickets, visit lyricopera.org.